Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Hello, I'm Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman from Saudi Arabia. And uh, I've so enjoyed my visit to America, particularly here in Southern California, where I've just visited with officials from major motion picture studios and uh, technology companies about the future of their investments in, in my country. But I must say, my greatest pleasure in Southern California while I was here was to be able to record this little announcement for the great Le Show. Please stay tuned to it, or I will not let you drive. Thank you. The drumbeat never changes tempo. It's steady like a rock, and like a rock, it crushes you as it gets louder. The drum gets louder and louder, and you know there is no parking on the dance floor. And when you Let us indeed get this over with. 
so we can get to the next one. From the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, from Santa Monica, California, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show with a, a, a somewhat new feature. News of the Bees. Let me tell you about the bees. Yeah. Yeah. The first definitive demonstration of climate change upsetting the vital interdependent relationships between species is now revealed thanks to a study led by the University of Sussex, according to phys.org. Research led by Professor Michael Hutchins at the University of Sussex. They have a university. Tracks how rising temperatures since the mid-17th century have wrecked a relationship that relies on precision timing to succeed, a relationship between a rare orchid species and the buffish mining bee, which, as you know, pollinates it. Professor Hutchings Emeritus professor in ecology said the climate is changing so rapidly that the early spider orchid, it's not a spider, it's an orchid, it's the orchid that doesn't bite, cannot respond effectively, leaving the species and probably many other plants with highly specialized pollination mechanisms. Well, that's me. Oh, I'm sorry. Facing the threat of severe decline and possible extinction. Hutchings said it's likely that many other species dependencies are also suffering from climate induced changes to their life cycles. This study is, we believe, the best documentation we have as yet of such an effect and confirms with hard data the long-held concerns of ecologists. He continued, while this is especially bad news for the early spider orchid, the devastating impact of climate change is in all likelihood harming the delicate interdependent relationships of many species, like the late spider. No, the early spider orchid achieves pollination by emitting a scent that imitates that of a female buffish mining bee. Is nature weird or what? The small, oh sorry, the smell fools male bees into attempting to mate, or as it's known in the trade, pseudo-copulation, I know the feeling, with the flower. In doing so, the male bee dislodges pollen masses from the flower. They are then transported to different flowers where the bee, where the bee next attempts pseudo-copulation. Because he don't quit. Pollination depends not only on male bees emerging before female bees and before flowering, but also crucially on the orchid flowering before female bees emerge, because otherwise the male bees would go for the bees. Rising temperatures have led to male bee flight, female bee flight, and flowering all occurring earlier in the calendar year. The timings of the three events are not changing at the same rate. This causes an increasing number of years in which the sequence of events needed for successful pollination does not occur. And, yes, it's the orchids and the bees. Lots of recent research on neonicotinoid pesticides has focused on their deadly effects on honeybees and hives. That makes me scratch just to think. But few have studied their possible effects on human health. Now a Quebec research team... That's right. Has made that's right there. Has made some disturbing findings, including how the pest killers might affect unborn babies during pregnancy, and how they play a role in fueling breast cancer. A postdoctoral fellow at the University of Montreal School of Mental Health, Elise Caron Baudouin, says while neonic pesticides have passed tests relating to their toxicity in order to be approved of use in Canada. No one has looked at the long-term effects of these chemicals on human hormone production. 
and that's what we decided to investigate, she says. They, the, they focused on estrogen projection, production in two contexts, during pregnancy and during the development of breast cancer. Not ethical to experiment on actual pregnant women or breast cancer patients, so they used cultures of cells. And uh, what they found is estrogen projection during pregnancy, when it's altered, it's associated with negative birth outcomes like low birth weight and smaller heads. Hey, small head! And there was an alteration of estrogen production in the experiment. The second round on breast cancer, they used a cancer cell line derived from breast cancer patients. In hormone-dependent breast cancer, which is the majority of breast cancer, the growth and proliferation of cancer cells is driven by high levels of estrogen. So they exposed the cells to concentrations of neonicotinoids commonly found in the environment. They saw there was an increased activity of protein of an enzyme that is responsible for estrogen production. So again, we saw that neonics could potentially be endocrine disruptors. You know, like moving fast and breaking things in your body. That enzyme is called aromatase. It turns the hormone androgen, it's a male hormone, into small amounts of estrogen in the body. Talk about your gender dysphoria. One of the key treatments for hormone-dependent breast cancer is aromatase inhibitors, which help block the production of estrogen. The full results of the research will appear in an upcoming issue of Environmental Health Perspectives. Neonics remain the most commonly used insecticides in Canada, used on the majority of cornfields in Ontario and Quebec. Did you know that there were cornfields in Ontario and Quebec? And fruit orchards to keep them free from your aphids, your spider mites, and your stink bugs. Quebec announced last month new restrictions on three of the pesticides in the group. A uh, move that was met with criticism from the Quebec grain producers. Talking about the bees. And now... News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol Jr. The Bank of Korea announced this week that the country's travel account deficit reached about $1.5 billion in February, rising from $1.1 the previous year. This was driven by a 40% drop in the number of Chinese tourists visiting South Korea as, a, as compared to the previous February. Why is this a, a matter of Olympic interest? Because the Olympics are supposed to drive an increase in tourists, aren't they? A rise in visitors from other parts of the world, particularly North Americans and Europeans who came to watch the Olympics, led to February recording the lowest tourist account deficit for South Korea in five months. And Calgary, Canada, Canada's plan to bid for the 2026 Olympics is increasingly controversial among politicians from cities and municipalities surrounding Calgary. A growing number say they have not been kept in the loop as Calgary officials work on the project. The fight over how information has been distributed is uh, drowning out actual debate on the contents of that information. 
Calgary's Olympic process, or they say in Canada, process, according to the Globe and Mail, is eroding confidence and enthusiasm for the project. Imagine that. This comes as a key deadline approaches. The International Olympic Committee will decide this September which cities get to continue the bid process based on the quality of their Olympic budgets and plans. Complete Olympic bid is due next January. Calgary's administration, in documents released this past Friday, acknowledged it has an information problem. Public perception around transparency of the city's exploration of 2026 Olympic bid may have been negatively impacted by a perceived lack of detailed information shared with the public up until now, said the document. Concerted efforts will be required to maintain transparency and offer balanced and neutral information. So there's not enough transparency. Let's maintain it. Hello? The Bid Corporation is supposed to produce a precise plan, a blueprint from a, sorry, I say blueprint from Exploration Committee said the games would cost $4.6 billion and run a deficit. That did not account for inflation or the cost of facilities that have not been constructed. Why would you include those? The IOC has since that blueprint relaxed standards such as seating capacity at venues and made other concessions to help potential bid cities reduce costs. So Calgary has spent months reconsidering proposed venues and potential upgrades. That, however, does not mean that costs will drop. Do they ever? When it's, you know, it's a movement, the Olympics, and we need one. We all need one. Every day. Which brings us to news of the warm. Won't you? Won't you let it bring us to that? Thank you. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Scientists working for Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, the oil company, warned the company decades ago about the climate change risks posed by fossil fuels, according to new documents, and this reported by Inside Climate News. Internal company documents uncovered by a Dutch news organization show that Shell had a deep understanding, dating at least to the 1980s, of the science and risks of climate change caused by fossil fuel emissions. They show, do these documents, that as the company pondered its responsibility to act, Shell's scientists urged it to heed the early warnings, even if, as they said, it might take until the 2000s for the mounting evidence to prove greenhouse gases were causing unnatural climate change. Quote, with the very long timescales involved, it would be tempting for society to wait until then before doing anything, company researchers wrote in a 1988 report based on studies completed two years earlier. The potential implications for the world are, however, so large wrote the Shell scientists, that policy options need to be considered much earlier, and the energy industry needs to consider how it should play its part, unquote. Otherwise, the experts said, it could be too late to take effective countermeasures to reduce the effects or even to stabilize the situation, unquote. I think we know how they decided to play their part. It's a, not a speaking part, apparently. 
For the next decade, as the emerging science was becoming increasingly robust, the company persisted in emphasizing the uncertainties of climate science and the costs of ambitious policies, according to the documents. Shell's own review of the scientific uncertainty and the evolution of energy systems indicates that policies to curb greenhouse gases beyond no-regrets measures could be premature, divert economic resources from more pressing needs, and further distort markets, according to a February 1995 management brief. How many of you out there are wearing management briefs right now, as opposed to management boxers? Hands? Keep your hands where they are. The documents were unearthed by the journalist Gelmers Momers of De Correspondent, whose investigative article was published in Dutch. Many of the documents were released on the Climate Files website, just like researchers at other oil companies like Exxon, mainly, Shell's scientists and managers understood before the general public that uncontrolled greenhouse gas emissions could eventually put its core business at risk and alter ecosystems and, you know, put much of the world's population in peril. Dutch environmentalists said they planned to sue Royal Dutch Shell to force it to cut its oil and gas investments and production. Responding... To that litigation, Shell said it has long embraced climate change science and strongly supports the Paris Climate Agreement. But it said that meeting that target is a complex social challenge, that energy is important to the global quality of life, and that the issue should not be tackled in court. Rather, it called for sound government policy, you know, where lobbying can happen, and a cultural shift toward green energy. There's a telling remark in the 1988 document the fossil fuels Shell consumed and sold at the time account for the production of 4% of the CO2 emitted worldwide from combustion. In the light of the possible effects of an increase in greenhouse gases, said the report, by Shell, it's important to examine the likely political responses to expressions of environmental concern. That document was circulated just as NASA scientist James Hansen testified in Congress that global warming had already arrived and had to be dealt with urgently. In a 1998 planning document carrying the acronym TINA for There Is No Alternative, Shell even imagined events in the year 2010 after, imagine this, violent and damaging storms wreaked havoc on the east coast of the United States. Although it is not clear whether the storms are caused by climate change, people are not willing to take further chances, the document speculates. After all, two successive reports from the International Panel on Climate Change have since 1995, have reinforced the human connection to climate change. Following the storms, the Shell document speculates, a coalition of environmental groups brings a class action suit against the U.S. government and fossil fuel companies on the grounds of neglecting what scientists, including their own, have been saying for years, that something must be done. Unquote. The Shell document. And see if this warning rings a bell with the bell just rung, the governor of the Bank of England, right now, this year, this this month, has warned of the catastrophic impact climate change could have for the financial system unless firms do more to disclose their vulnerabilities. That's all you got to do, really. Telling banks and insurers they would need to provide more information about the risks they might face for climate change, Mark Carney said failure to do so would have damaging effects for financial stability. He said the finance industry could be forced into making rapid adjustments if they did not gradually expose where their climate change risks might lie, which he said could trigger steep losses. 
He warned of a Minsky moment, a climate Minsky moment, referring to the work of the economist Hyman Minsky, whose analysis was used to show how banks overreached before 2008. <laughs> Given the uncertainties around climate, not everyone will agree on the timing or skill of the adjustments required, but the right information allows skeptics and evangelists alike to back their convictions with their capital, Carney said. He said there were growing opportunities for firms to finance the, tradi- the transition to a low-carbon economy. He said new, low, new technology investments and long-term infrastructure projects would need to be financed at roughly the qu- quadruple the current rate. He can file that with Shell. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, our friends at the United States Army Corps of Engineers, the Let Us Try people, that's our motto. Essayons. Let us try. This from Nature. No, not Mother. Nature.com. Floods on the Mississippi are larger and more frequent today than at any time in the past 500 years. Corps of Engineers, pat yourselves on the back. A new study suggests it's partly because structures erected to control the river have, in fact, increased the flood risk. Unintended consequences much? The research is likely to inflame a long-running debate over how to manage the Mississippi. It runs through 10 U.S. states. Yeah, but there are 40 more. Some hydrologists say the river needs more naturalistic management, mimicking the wandering dynamic waterway of a century ago. But now... Millions of people live and farm in the historic floodplain. An entire shipping economy is built around the Mississippi, making back to nature kind of a quixotic adventure. The Corps of Engineers, which manages the flow of the Mississippi, that's not too big a job for them, declined to comment on the study. But a coastal systems ecologist who directs LSU's Sea Grant College program says that the study should be on every desk of every Corps engineer who's designing infrastructure for the Mississippi River. Unquote. Doesn't need to read it. Just put it on the desk. Looks nice there. A, sci- a geoscientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts and his colleagues looked at oxbow lakes and oak trees on the lower Mississippi between Missouri and Louisiana. Oxbow lakes are coils of the river that become detached from the main flow as the Mississippi winds around and changes course. The team examined three lakes that were cut off from the main river in 1500, 1722, and 1776. They preserved layers of material laid down by high flows of major floods, whose timing the researchers estimated using several methods, not including the Fitbit. Both the frequency and magnitude of floods on the Mississippi have increased in the past 150 years. Floods were correlated with global weather patterns like the El Nino and in, the, in the Pacific and the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation, both of which influenced when and how much rain entered the system, but those cycles couldn't explain all of the increase. The team suggests that up to three-quarters of the increased flood risk might be attributable to the dams, walls, and levees that now confine the river. They turned a lazy, meandering behemoth, <laughs> not me. They could stop they could slop out excess water along much of its length into a supercharged fire hose. Now when the river overtops its banks, the flood is faster, bigger, and more powerful than it would have been without human intervention. In essence, the same engineering works that prevent small floods make big floods worse.
Well, building tomorrow's fire hoses, let us try, says the leader of the research team. It's definitely something that needs to be looked at more. But let's just put let's just put it on the desk, shall we? At the United States Army Corps of Engineers. And now, ladies and gentlemen, a Le Show World Radio Premiere. Get up off your ass. Get down from your perch. T shirts are for sale. Load up on some merch. Music may be free, but I got to keep living. Well, I think you know what you want to be. Time marches on I got electrified fences I got clothes and guitars I got big time expenses If you want me to rock David Crosby, Paul Schaefer, my friend Derek Smalls, world premiere, right here on the show. I don't know how that happened. 
I just slipped it under my door. This is the show, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this week, more more tumultuous events in the presidency of <laughs> President Trump. Um, long rumored, finally occurred the firing of uh, the administrator of the Veterans Administration, Scott Shulkin, because he had been making headlines with uh, expenditures that he'd been making. Uh, this is a pattern with several of Trump's cabinet members, Ben Carson, $30,000 to uh, redecorate his office, big expensive uh, desk or sofa or something, um, Shulkin, travel expenses, and um, the, the administrator of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, who hired, uh, it's insisted on the hiring of extra security people, it was about $3 million worth for uh, his trips to places like Disneyland. Where, you know, the EPA administrator has to make sure that Disneyland is, I don't know, environmental, protected, administrated. Um, also, a bulletproof desk he'd ordered. Apparently, there had been, according to Pruitt's office, death threats, although the Associated Press found no record of any such threats in any public agencies databases the uh, <laughs> president also um, announced a couple of policies that uh, according to some reporting caught members of his administration by surprise like uh, announcing that there would be military going to the southern border of the United States to uh, patrol it until the wall was built so you know you know they'll be there for a while and um, also apparently c- catching the new Economic advisor Larry Kudlow, recently of cable TV, uh, by surprise with uh, his response, that is the (laughs) president's, to uh, China's retaliation for his announcement of new tariffs by upping the ante from 50 or 60,000, 50 or 60 million billion, some number, to 100 billion. Um, Kudlow apparently had found out about the. uh, just as it was announced by the president. Um, John Kelly, the chief of staff installed to uh, sort of bring order to the process of the White House, reported by Politico to have talked uh, uh, on his way out of a White House meeting about his desire to quit, having to be talked out of it by several aides. Uh, He was advising... (laughs) president, to uh, fire Scott Pruitt. But Pruitt, as EPA administrator, has uh, been a favorite. Uh, One of the things he's done, aside from those uh, expenditures, is um, he was reported to have gotten a um, a fairly affordable place to live in Washington, D.C., an apartment that was rented to him at uh, what most people in Washington said was far below market rates, by uh, the owner of the apartment, who just happened to be a lobbyist for the energy industry, which is, of course, regulated by the EPA. These nutty coincidences, they happen from time to time. Donald Trump, after staying silent about the Stormy Daniels thing, uh, in which an ex-porn star and director, come on now, people, porn director too, um, was challenging the validity of a 
non-disclosure agreement, which President <laughs> President Trump never signed, he uh, came out this week and said he had never he had no knowledge of the hundred thirty thousand dollars in hush money paid to her by his attorney Michael Cohen, who had said previously he'd done it just out of love for his client. This raised some additional questions about how uh, Trump could be simultaneously demanding that she come into arbitration to uh, settle the dispute over whether the NDA is valid or not when he's saying he wasn't a party to it or had no knowledge of its terms that included that payoff. That's that's kooky. And John Dowd, one of the chief members of, of Trump's legal team dealing with the... Um, Robert Mueller investigation into Russia and other stuff like money. Uh, John Dowd quit. Uh, there were a, a slew of reports of attempts by the Trump administration to recruit other prominent Washington, D.C. attorneys. Ted Olson, who'd been involved in a number of Washington scandals earlier on in his career, um, and others, all of whom appeared to have more important things to do than to join the Trump legal team, which left Ty Cobb, not the slugger from the Detroit Tigers of decades earlier, no, the lawyer, um, almost almost alone on the legal team. In other words... This week, for the first time, the training wheels are off. And as the challenges get tougher... The teams realize that the one thing the businessman turned chief executive doesn't need from them is advice. Scott. Yes, sir. If if this is about me giving some of my key team members big raises without first (laughs) clearing it with you. It's not about that. Well, as to the larger security detail... You know, uh, just because there's no official record of the death threats against me doesn't mean they didn't happen. And, of course, (laughs) bulletproof desks don't come cheap. I know that as well. Scott, it's not about money. If I cared about money, you think I'd be sitting here? They'd be rebooting The Apprentice by now. The NBC guy told me that. We'd be like Roseanne on steroids, which, by the way, I think she's on. But listen... This is about you. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do need some place to stay while I'm in D.C. And this lobbyist fella just happened to have a dirt cheap condo that he couldn't seem to rent out. Scott, so. Scott, you're doing a terrific job dismantling the terrible Obama overregulation. You're helping return the Environmental Protection Agency to what it was meant to be. More of an environmental agency, like a William Morris or an ICM for the environment. All really terrific. Well, thank you, sir. I, I couldn't help noticing that you... You you compliment people a lot right before, you know, we're cutting them loose like a stray calf in a flash flood. Scott, I can tell you this. I don't know what that means. But here's the deal. You've got a major challenge this week. And I have to tell you, I'm not sure you can accomplish it. Mr. Trump, I'd abolish my damn agency if I could. If the damn Congress did Please, please, I'm up to my hairline with the fake Congress. Scott... I'm reading about you in the papers, seeing stories about you in the cable news all the time. You know what that means? That I'm getting her done? It means there's someone else I'm not reading about. Mm. That's not good. Like, so not good, it's bad. Well, Whatever you're doing, 
whatever you're bulletproofing, you gotta keep it from making the news. Well, I, I hope you don't think I'm leaking all that stuff about me, sir. No, I don't. But now, you gotta unleak it. Can you do it? Honestly, Mr. Trump, I'm more about opening up pipelines than shutting one down, but uh, I'll do my best. Was I scared in there? <laughs> I'll admit it's a, a little eerie when he, it seems like he's looking right at you and then uh, you realize he's watching Fox News on the wall behind you. General Kelly, what's up? You uh, asked me to come in, sir. Does a person have to get a sex change before you stop calling him, sir? You know, John, I like my generals, mm -hmm. but as General McMaster can tell you, mm -hmm. I like uh, my generals better when they leave the whole military thing in the outer office. You know, the saluting and the sir and the sitting like there's a rod up their hooses. Yes, sir. Here's the thing. In here, it's, it's just you and me. Believe me. I know that, sir. So, you're not happy here? I keep hearing that. I keep hearing that you're not happy with me, sir. Okay, then we understand each other. Meaning? Meaning, I haven't been happy since I last slept in my own building. I don't know about you. Except I know this. Your task this week. Mm -hmm. You want me to fire Scott? Nah, I took care of him. You fired him? Here's the deal. I took care of him. He'll be fine. But I can tell you this. Tariffs, getting out of Syria, military at the border. Who's on that? Well, we all are, sir, now that we... Good. So your task this week is to get those things done so we can finally move on to whatever I think of next. You think that's accomplishable? Because I do. Then I do too, sir. In my own way, sir. I mean, I... I wouldn't use that word. I couldn't help myself. It just grated on my ear. I, I don't even think it is a word, but it is now. Yes, sir. All the lawyers on the team here? Yes, sir. That would be me. Jay's still on the team, isn't he? Yeah, uh, yes, sir. You're but... saying that just because he's never defended a high-profile client in either a civil or criminal matter, he's not really on this particular team? I'm not saying that, but uh, in this particular situation, that happens to be true. And... Okay. So we don't get the cream of Washington lawyers. You think I ever got the cream of New York lawyers? You think Mike Cohen is cream? He's barely milk. <laughs> I'm not really competent to judge. If I wanted a judge, I'd hire a friggin' judge, right? Yeah. So look, am I talking to Mueller or am I not talking to Mueller? Am I talking about Stormy? Am I not talking about Stormy? See, I just confused me. Mr. Trump, we should definitely sit down. I am sitting down. I wasn't finished, no. We should definitely sit down and wargame all the possibilities and dangers of talking to Mueller. I happen to think that there are a lot more of the latter than the former. Ty, Ty, I've been in a million depositions against the hottest hotshots New York's got to offer. They never laid a glove on me. You can ask Don King. He knows from gloves. Mr. Trump, you asked for my opinion. Yeah, but here's the deal. I wasn't asking for that opinion. You know Rupert Murdoch and Carl Icahn? Yes, sir. They think I should go in there and carve Mr. Muller a new blowhole. What do you think of that? He's a very experienced and meticulous prosecutor. And Rupert and Carl are brilliant businessmen who could buy and sell Muller eight times till Tuesday, right? Yes, sir. Okay, that's settled. Now, your task for this week. Yes, sir. Figure out what I should do about Stormy. 
I'd certainly advise against trying to carve her a new blowhole, sir. Oh, don't get me started with what she needs. Can you figure out a winning strategy for me this week? I'll have to confer with some colleagues. Okay, great. So? So you'll have to hire me some colleagues. New team, new tasks, same mission. We're going to make this legal team great again. Now, the world is his boardroom. Dear Presidentess, this week, it's not just for TV anymore. Now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our friend the Atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. 
save to save to meter. Save, save to save to meter. Hey, remember that dream nuclear reactor that was uh, going to help everything going on in Japan? Of course you don't. It's going to start decommissioning that reactor, the troubled Monju Fast Breeder Reactor. Damn breeders, after decades of accidents, cost overruns, and scandals, that's all. It's the beginning of the end of a controversial project that exposed the shortcomings of the country's nuclear policy and the government's failure to fully explain the risks and the costs. That's so unusual for governments in the nuclear thing. Last July, the Japan Atomic Energy Agency, no, sorry, this July, they're going to begin decommissioning what was hailed as a dream reactor. Well, then dream about it. Don't build it. That was expected to produce more nuclear fuel than it consumed. The government has spent so far more than $9.5 billion on the plant, and it is barely ever operated. That is to say, the plant, not the government. The government still operates. The plan approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Authority late last month to decommission the reactor calls for the extraction of spent nuclear fuel to be completed by the end of March 2023. You know how easy that is to do. They're doing it all over the world. Full decommissioning is expected to take about 30 years and to cost $3.5 billion, but that could climb, you think? This according to Nikkei.com, as the full technical requirements and the selection of the nuclear waste sites aren't well understood. I'll say, well, there'll be more about nuclear waste sites in a moment. Japan does not have the technological ability to manage the decommissioning process on its own, so it's enlisting the help of France. Among the technical challenges is handling the plant's sodium coolant, which is highly reactive and explodes on contact with air. So keep the air out. I blame the air. The Manju project had many problems, even before Fouke. Planning began in the 1960s. Its uh, fast breeder technology was considered a dream for resource-poor Japan, which had been traumatized by the oil crisis of the 70s, even though planning began in the 60s. You see what I'm saying? The reactor was supposed to generate more plutonium fuel than it consumed. The reactor finally started operating in 1994. That'll deal with that trauma but was forced to shut down the following year due to a sodium leak. Those are not those are not pretty. It stains the trousers. It has been inoperative for most of the time since the decision to decommission was made in December 2016 following a series of safety scandals, including the revelation that many safety checks had been omitted. That's a dream. Also in Japan, a construction firm siphoned off the danger allowances of technical trainees it sent to do cleanup work at Fuk. These were, these were uh, immigrants from Vietnam, so it's okay, really. The Environment Ministry announced this this week, according to Mainichi.jp. The firm, which assigned the technical trainees to radioactive decontamination and home demo- demolition work, used false wage records in explaining that the allowances have been paid. The government is investigating the firm for suspected violations of the Labor Standards Act. The foreign trainee system is intended to bring foreign workers from developing countries to Japan to learn technical skills, like skimming off the thing. The Environment Ministry has confirmed the construction firm skimmed off the trainees' danger allowances in the last two years when they worked at a demolition site 
in Fouke. But they'll be okay, because the thing, near-empty classrooms mark the start of the new academic year in municipalities where evacuation orders dating from the Fouke disaster were recently lifted. Come on back! Where's... Where, hey, come on... 14 public elementary and junior high schools in five communities reopened their doors this month for the first time in seven years, according to Asahi.com. Only 135 youngsters showed up. What's wrong with you? The figure represents just 3% of the children who were enrolled at schools prior to the disaster. This highlights the daunting task for officials trying to revitalize local communities since uh, there are fears that an absence of children offers murky prospects for the future. Well, bring more old people. No. Municipalities where evacuation orders were lifted, refurbished school buildings, and constructed new swimming pools and gymnasiums to attract more children. Maybe maybe less radiation, as opposed to the swimming pools. Daily, now, here in the United States, Daily finds the U.S. Department of Energy is paying to Idaho for missing a deadline to get radioactive liquid waste out of underground storage tanks those uh, fines have passed the 3.5 million mark this week, according to the AP. The federal agency, the Department of Energy, hey, Rick Perry, how you doing? Uh, started paying the fines three years ago. It's in violation, is the agency, of a 1992 agreement involving almost a million gallons of sodium. There's that there's that sodium, nasty sodium again. Sodium-bearing waste sitting above the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer at a desert site in eastern Idaho that includes the Idaho National Laboratory. Federal and state officials are considering spending a couple million on the accumulated of the accumulated fines for monitoring wells in the aquifer that's used by cities for drinking water and farmers for irrigation, just to see if, you know, the waste is leaking down into the water and the thing. The Energy Department built a $600 million facility to treat the liquid waste. That's the good news. The bad news? It is so far failed to work. But it's money well spent because, and back to Japan, a government body has given up trying to arbitrate between TEPCO and more than 15,000 people who are seeking higher monthly compensation for the uh, disaster in Fuke, largest arbitration case involving the Fuke thing. Residents who were forced to evacuate about 15,000 or 70 percent of a town's population, Nami town, Nami town, signed the petition to demand more compensation from TEPCO. Their monthly payment for each resident was about $934. Don't spend it all in one place. Three, Four years ago, the Dispute Resolution Center offered an arbitration plan that called for raising the amount by 50%. The town accepted it, but TEPCO maintains that increasing that compensation would have a significant effect, effect on other evacuees. The center has repeatedly asked the utility to accept the plan. This past Friday, the dispute resolution center told the town of its decision to end the arbitration process. More than 800 of the claimants are now dead. TEPCO playing the Four Corners game. Clean, cheap, safe, too delayed to meet our friend the Atom. And now, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Representative from the alert system used by Columbus and Bartholomew County, Indiana, to notify residents about urgent matters has apologized. Some county residents who signed up for the Everbridge system reported receiving dozens of notifications in short periods of time this week about floods, tornadoes, and flood warnings. 
The notifications, either by phone, text, message, or email, must be answered and acknowledged, or they will be repeated. The county emergency management official apologized on social media for the repeated notifications, said they were reporting the problem to their provider. Everbridge was confident the issue had been rectified and does not anticipate any additional duplicate weather notifications. How about some just some duplicate weather? Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has special privacy features on the platform that suggests the company has been operating a two-tiered privacy system favoring its leadership over its users, according to BuzzFeed News. Zuckerberg and other executives have been able to use ephemeral messaging features, much like Snapchat, which delete Facebook messages from recipients' inboxes after a certain period of time. That was revealed by TechCrunch and confirmed by Facebook. The public system does not offer that option. Facebook said, we, sh- we are going to make this available to uh, more people. This may take some time. We will no longer be le- deleting any executive messages until then. We should have done this sooner, and we're sorry that we did not. Zuckerberg benefited from the ephemeral messaging feature. It removed, among other things, an early quote of his that said, People are dumb zucks for trusting us with their data. He didn't say Zucks. Sinclair Broadcasting Group executives are trying to make amends internally after making their anchors look like hostages in those must-read promo segments bashing the media. You know about the reaction to that. Anchors from three different Sinclair stations told the Daily Beast, on condition of anonymity, that Sinclair's regional news directors have begun reaching out to offer a mild apology. A mild apology. The father of the woman who allegedly opened fire at YouTube's headquarters in Northern California this week said he's sorry when reporters came to his house. I apologize, all the U.S. people, all the humans. I apologize. I'm sorry. I can't believe it. Ismail Agdam told ABC station KGO outside his home in Riverside County. So another thing he's sorry about is living in Riverside. No, we love the Inland Empire. And Lord has offered an apology after she was roasted on Twitter for joking about Whitney Houston and a bathtub. The 21-year-old singer posted a now-deleted Instagram photo of a tub being filled with running water and captioned it, And I Will Always Love You, a lyric from Houston's 1992 recording of the Dolly Parton song of the same name. Some fans were incensed by the posting. The New Zealand native, Lord, posted a note on her... Instagram stories to apologize. Extremely, extremely poorly chosen quote. I'm so sorry for offending anyone. I hadn't even put this together. I was just excited to take a bath. I'm an idiot. Love Whitney forever and ever. Sorry again. Let's just review. I was just excited to take a bath. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
You know what, ladies and gentlemen, I, I neglected to mention also on that world premiere from the new Derek Small's solo L- LP, CD, album, streaming thing, whatever, is a legendary guitarist, Waddy Waxhell. A tip of the show, Shepo, to him. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over your audio device of choice. And it would be just like not making the floods on the Mississippi worse if you'd agree to join with me then. Or would you? All righty. Thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show, Chapeau, to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile, and Hawaii deaths. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead. And Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, you can email me. And by me, I mean M-E. The playlist of music heard here on and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts all at harryshearer.com. And me, I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. If you want to follow Derek Smalls, he's at Smalls Life on Twitter. But really, who is it? The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.